Hello, everyone. I am that Weems guy and have a special treat for you tonight. Um, we've done numerous episodes here uh, recently on the origin of the modern technique and the spread of the modern technique and many of the, and the many of the advocates of it. And while I do readily note that it has its place in history for a reason, and those people deserve their place in, in history, and they need to be remembered, and they need to be given credit for what they did, I think that does also kind of paint the pictures that there was nothing else going on anywhere in the world, and that it all just started right there with them, and I just don't think that's accurate, and so um, a friend of mine who you will be introduced to here shortly, and I have been involved in a discussion that's probably been going on a couple of months by email and phone calls, and we're going to invite you into that conversation tonight, and uh, here uh, to join our audience for the first time, Mr. Gary Greco. Gary, how you doing? Hey, thanks, Lee. Um, for uh, I, I enjoyed listening to your show, and it's uh, it's great to be part of it now. Cool, thank you. Why don't you tell the audience about yourself? Well, I mean, uh, the most relevant thing is I've been a shooter since childhood. Not like you grew up, you know, toting, you know, a, a wingmaster, you know, hunting in in Georgia like those stories you always tell. But uh, I grew up in military bases around the world uh, where I had access to some of the best military practical shooters. Um, I, uh, you know, NRA small bore. Uh, my instructor was a guy uh, who's a very famous um, American Special Forces uh, soldier um, uh, who sadly, when I, when I was only 10 or so years old, uh, was killed in a helicopter crash uh, named Larry Thorny. Uh, to anybody that knows anything about history, his name will resonate with them. But uh, I myself served in the U.S. Army. Uh, I was in the fifth, uh, 15th Mess Kit Repair Company. Um, you know, everybody else that comes on the show is some kind of special ops guy. So, you know, hey, somebody had to repair mess kits, and that's what I did. Um, uh, then I became, uh, began a 32-year career in the U.S. as a U.S. intelligence officer. I specialized in counterterrorism issues. Um, throughout that career, I supported uh, military forces in Lebanon, uh, Panama, Gulf War, Somalia, Bosnia. Um, Liberia, Central African Republic, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Um, additionally, uh, I was assigned as uh, the senior civilian intelligence advisor to the uh, commanding general of uh, Joint Special Operations Command. Um, of interest, I was also in the Pentagon on 9-11 when it got struck and oh. ended up staying there for about the next three days. Uh, but importantly, I'm a lifelong shooter, I've been heavily involved in the uh, training. I, I've had the good fortune of training under, you know, a lot of people that I think we'll mention, you know, here um, here on the show today. And uh, just a, a lifelong learner and, uh, um, you know, still to this day. Uh, where it all started from me from a practical shooting standpoint is in 1971, a 14-year-old uh, Gary wrote a letter to Lieutenant Colonel uh, John Cooper uh, out in uh, California. He uh, had written an article that was in Gun Digest uh, periodical, which was kind of a 
end of year compilation of articles in a lot of different gun magazines. And Cooper write a, wrote a story about the progress of practical shooting. And I read that and I'm like, wow, I want to be involved in something like that. So I wrote him a letter and uh, he wrote me a letter back and said, you know, I'm out here in California. If there's no chance of you getting out here, there's a fellow near where you live named John Pepper. And uh, that was kind of my introduction to, you know, practical shooting training. And uh, that was over 50 years ago. There you go. And, and for the audience, you should recognize that name, John Pepper. He was the inventor of the Pepper Popper that you've probably all shot on a range somewhere. Yep, absolutely. He was. And he was a, he was a fine rifle shot and, and a great trainer, too. So, right. Would you like to talk about him to start off? No, no. Let's, let's kind of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about a guy that you know something a little about, about right. is uh, um, Police Chief August Bolmer. Mm-hmm. Of the Berkeley, uh, California, um, you know, police department who, uh, was, who developed the kind of first testing and procedures for police tactics and firearms. He, he you know, as you know, I know, cause you did study for your graduate work, you know, he, he was a very hardened infantry combat veteran of the Spanish American war. He fought in the Philippines campaign and, but he was a, he was a, a pretty upstanding police officer there in Berkeley. Uh, which is kind of amusing because yeah. you know, Ber- Berkeley is kind of a thought of as a progressive, you know, uh, leftist, uh, you know, place now. But back in those days, uh, the early part of the uh, uh, 20th century, it, it was kind of rough, a rough little port town, you know, in, on the San Francisco Bay. And, uh, you know, Chief Ulmer was kind of credited as the first guy to kind of do firearms training and testing, and you know, that that kind of thing you know yeah, so he, i kind of i kind of draw that as the first place yeah he was he was very influential in you know inventing things like crime labs and, and the like as well and that's and management and, and actually training management to his supervisors within the agency and that's where i learned about him was in personnel uh, you know study of personnel management and it's funny how so many things from that graduate program I keep finding correlations to the firearms training world. And uh, when you sent the, the initial document to me and I opened it up, that's like one of the first names. And I've seen, well, well, there it is right there. Yeah. Hey, and what, what I should tell the audience, you know, that th- this talk here isn't meant to be some kind of definitive study of the history of, you know, practical, you know, modern pack practical firearms training. You know, it's more an interpretation of the how and why occurred providing some reasons, some arguments, and some evidence. So, you know, it's my history. And, you know, if people have other things, I'd love to see the documentation and uh, things like that. So sure. A a key thing, a a key thing that's played a role, you know, in, you know, this, you know, practical firearms training is books and magazine articles. They play a vital role in the development of practical shooting. You know, the written word has power. It allows the spread of ideas, creativity, and the truth. And, you know, shooting books from the early area were usually covered, you know, handguns and rifles, but rarely both together. And I, um, up until recently, <laughs> I've had a rather extensive 
a collection of firearms books that probably numbered in the several hundreds. Uh, I've, I've been uh, giving those to a previous guest of yours, uh, David Cagle. I've been sending uh, out computer boxes full of books uh, <laughs> out to him because uh, he's going to carry on uh, this study of uh, history. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm just sitting here imagining John Hearn hearing that when he listens to the episode and just getting furious. Uh, and that amuses me. Yeah. Well, John and I <laughs> talk enough about this, but uh, <laughs> David's going to become the keeper of the books. There you go. And, uh, you know, but uh, you know, these handgun books talked about pointing the gun, rarely about sights or aiming. Now, interestingly, the rifle books covered great t- detail, position and aiming. You know, but handgun books, you know, uh, uh, prior to probably about the 1960s, rarely talked about uh, aiming uh-huh. a handgun. Now, interestingly, what really drove, I believe, and I'll argue, um, you know, our you know, methodology prior to the modern technique was what was called dime novels of the Old West, and what these were, were they were highly embellished and take that for its meaning of events that supposedly occurred in the, in the Wild West and the activities of certain individuals. And these books were highly, highly popular throughout the world. Uh, the King of England, the Kaiser of Germany were great readers of these novels because they were, they depicted, you know, the Wild West and you know, fighting Indians and saving the damsel and quick draw and poker table and drinking and, you know, gunfighting and all that kind of, you know, kind of myth. And it it truly was myth. And there's been enough uh, research uh, probably in the last 15 years to kind of say the Wild West wasn't quite as wild as it's been portrayed. Now, interestingly, I believe, and I'll argue that a lot of our original technique came from mimicking these, you know, things that a lot of these early gun guys uh, read in these dime novels. Uh, we, we have documentation that the great Texas Ranger and the, the successful hunter of Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Frank Hamer, and his sons were, were uh, you know, vivid, vivid readers of, of these uh, novels. Uh, and, you know, also... Um, a fellow that I hopefully will talk more about, um, uh, Captain Fairbane of the Shanghai uh, Police Constabulary, he specifically says he based his technique on reading these dime novels. I would even contend that Cooper's leather slaps that I think uh-huh. we'll talk about later, you know, were mimicking Hollywood's, the 1950s TV uh, westerns were mimicking things that they saw in that. And those Westerns were based on the, the dime novels, you know, of the 1890s, you know, in early part of the 20th century. So, you know, I, I just find that like really interesting. So if you want to riff off that. Uh, um, yeah. You know, I, I've mentioned in a couple of previous episodes that Cooper had a book come out, I believe it was in 1960 in which he's writing all about point shooting. And then the very next year, he had a book come out 
in which he's like, hey, folks, there are, there's a sight on our pistol. You know, you should be looking at this front sight as you shoot. Well, and it, it's amazing it, what you can do. I mean, if anything, we owe Cooper even more right. uh, than just coming up with the modern technique. What we really, I, I think, owe to him is he and a lot of those early guys of the Southwest Pistol League, and there was others around the country, they broke away from the orthodoxy, and the orthodoxy was squat point shooting, uh, yep. you know, and that the uh, was kind of an FBI method uh, that carried over into, you know, local law enforcement, even the military. You look at uh, uh, World War II training videos, and uh, um, they, they show a very stylized, dime novel-looking Western you know, shooting style. So if anything, we owe Cooper even more for break, you know, breaking that paradigm of, of, you know, of technique based on like highly embellished accounts of the wild west. All right. Um, Before we move on, I I do think we need to mention someone else who would have been a contemporary, at least around in the same era as chief Vollmer. And that would be one Theodore Roosevelt. Absolutely. He was the uh, uh, first New York City police commissioner and being with his experience in the Wild West, you know, he, he uh, had a, a, a cattle ranch out in the uh, Dakota territories um, and he was well-versed with hunting rifles and six shooters and, and all that. And he kind of introduced NYPD to the first training standards. And that, that was in like the late 1880s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, we, we owe a, 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 bunch, a, a bunch to Teddy Roosevelt. We also uh, owe something else. Later on, when he was the president of the United States, he, uh, he started in 1903 the board for the promotion of rifle practice, which shortly thereafter becomes what we know today as the Civilian Marksmanship Program. That was another program started by President Teddy Roosevelt. <clears throat> so... You know, Teddy was a you know a pretty proficient rifle rifle shot, and uh, um, he saw a need in in the early part of the 20th century for a good rifle practice because they might have to draw upon the citizenry, you know, in a time of uh, national need. Right. So we have Chief August Vollmer, and we have Police Commissioner later. President Teddy Roosevelt, who were both veterans of the Spanish-American War, and in the early 1900s are beginning to make this push towards, you know, we have need to have standards and testing, etc. Well, along in the late 19-teens comes another big worldwide conflict, and I love to point out to people that no one who fought in the Great War called it World War One. Right. So the, the Great War begins in Europe in 1914. The United States later enters in 1917 and puts an end to it in 1918. And uh, but there were some things that came out of that that influenced us today. What were some of those things? Yeah, um, the, the British had this standard of having specialty schools. And what they would do is uh, the, uh, the British regiments would go into the line for, for two weeks at a time. They would two weeks in line, two weeks in reserve, and then they'd have two weeks where they would train and take leave. And they used, and the, the Brits had this uh, specialty firearms school, and they actually had a school for handguns. 
And they taught both revolver and the uh, semi-auto pistol, which was mainly uh, was mainly the 1911. Uh, but interestingly, they taught in this school two-handed grip, the handgun as offensive weapon. Uh, they had like uh, moving targets that were three-dimensional and dressed as German soldiers, and they uh, covered uh, a certain amount of tactics on things like use of cover. So, you know, and this was essentially 1916, you know, through 1918 that they were doing these kind of things. The, the American military, as you mentioned, got involved a little bit later, and we had our own schools and we developed field manuals on the machine gun and on the, the handguns. But um, we, uh, at the time, uh, we we taught the handgun as an emerge as an emergency weapon, not really as an offensive weapon. And there was a couple of interesting uh, guys that were instructors. One was then lieutenant, later general Julian Hatcher, who became much more widely known for some of his uh, uh, ballistic studies. And also a Captain Herbert McBride. And we can talk about uh-huh. uh, Herbert a little bit later on. Right. Yep. All right. And then coming out of the Great War era, well, we get into the 20s. And the 1920s was actually where we see one of the probably the first traveling trainer. Yeah. And someone who I think is very influential, who wrote an excellent book. And that would be John Henry Fitzgerald. Can you tell us about him? Absolutely. He was a Colt factory representative. He was a New York state trooper. He was also a pretty good uh, revolver gunsmith. And he, you know, uh, would tune up, you know, Colt revolvers for a lot of the people that he was traveling around and, and, uh, you know, training. He wrote a a very good book called Shooting. I think it was called Shooting Handbook, I think Uh it was actually called. Uh, He also developed the Colt silhouette target and he used two-handed shooting. He, he, it's the first time I can find that the term practical shooting was used. And uh, he's kind of a little bit well-known um, because he uh, used to gunsmith these uh, guns that are now called fit specials, which were, you know, cut down uh, um, Colt pistols that, you know, we're true fighting pistols. They're most noteworthy and to, to the, the uh, chagrin of a lot of instructors today because he cut out the uh, trigger guard, you know, on it. And the reason I think he did that was uh, they didn't have to worry about the responsibility, you know, because the triggers were like 18 pounds. And the other thing is he, he, he uh, trained a, a lot of police departments up in the Northeast where they had to wear gloves and, you know, stuff like that. And that gave easy access to the trigger. Um, And we'll be be carrying the revolver in the outer coat pocket of a big heavy coat. Yeah. Um, In in reality, he probably made, he probably made 20 or 30 of these things, but I'm sure you could find several hundred on the market (laughs) today. But uh, it's not like they were commissioned by Colt. This was something he did on his own. Right. Yeah, that book that he wrote, it amazes me when I when I amazed me when I read it. How many of the topics that he touched on 
could be dropped into any, any internet gun forum, any podcast, any group of gun guys getting together today and having a discussion or a debate or an argument. And all of those topics are in his book. And I think it was written in what, 29 or 30 yeah, right or published in that era. Yeah. And e- even to the point of gun control debates. Yep. And well, he was a straight trooper too. Mm-hmm. People kind of forget that. Right. You know, during this time period, you had the advent of the uh, American film industry. And, you know, what did they do? They the fine content. Uh, they went back to old dime novels and started now producing movies mm-hmm. of, you know, TV westerns that, you know, go on to almost today. And it's heavily influenced, you know, fast draw competitions, holster designs, because the holster designs we see in the movies, it's a rare movie where they use historically correct, you know, guns or even holsters. Uh, you had these stylized Hollywood holsters that became very prevalent in a lot of the early movies and right up until really recently. And I, what I, again, I'll argue that a lot of these myths that came out of these dime novels that are now being perpetrated by cinema essentially becomes the DNA of U.S. shooting technique, you know, and, and I, I just find that like, highly interesting. Yeah, and all of that coming out of the entertainment industry painted the picture that back during the Old West that people just went around shooting each other and that was the end of it, when in reality it was actually a very litigious era. Yeah. Uh, there, there were lots and lots and lots of court cases resulting from these shootings. You know, the Earp were put on trial. Yes, several times. Several times. Yeah, and there would be actually what a lot of times would be competing judges and political entities, and they were fighting it out, and whichever court system they could get someone to. You know, you might get drugged to the neighboring county because their judges there might be more friendly or or they could control the jury pool. And there, a lot of these instances that you know of from history, you know, the cameras, they put up the end and the cowboy rode off into the sunset, but there may have been a three-year legal battle that followed. Yeah, absolutely. But that's, that's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, probably the next big name, uh, after that, if we stay in chronological order, would be Ed McGivern. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a couple of books that were highly influential during that time period. And the reason they were, I argue, they're highly influential is whose bookshelves they were on, mm-hmm. who uh, that later became huge proponents of, pra- of the pra- practical shooting movement. And the first book I'll point you to is in 1935, Herbert McBride writes a, a book on his combat experience there in the Great War. Now, Herbert McBride was a U.S. national um, rifle and pistol champion, and he was an attorney, I believe, in Illinois. And uh, like a lot of Americans, when World War I broke out, he went across the border to Canada and joined the Canadian military. And he served in the Canadian military and was a, 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 he got a commission and was an officer And but because of his knowledge of uh, riflery, he writes uh, about his uh, experiences with rifle, pistol and machine gun. 
um, again, because of his experience with rifles, you know, the machine gun was kind of a new weapon and tactics were being developed. And McBride developed a lot of the tactics, definitely fire, plunging fire, uh, mass, mass machine gun fire. Again, because of his knowledge of, uh, you know, knowledge and skills with a rifle, he kind of adapted them, uh, you know, to uh, using the machine gun. Um, you know, I, uh, sadly, uh, McBride suffered from severe case of, uh, of, uh, alcoholism and he was uh actually uh kicked out of the canadian military he came back to the united states and he quickly joined the american military they took him on as a trainer of you know machine guns and they made use of his experience the reason i bring this book up is this book had a large influence on jeff cooper rex applegate john george ambassador john george john pepper and many others um, I have found those that book with a high level of margin notes uh, on on uh, in all of their bookshelves. I was at Gunsight about a year ago, and I went down in the Cooper's uh, um, uh, gun room, and that book is on prominent display. And there's many pages of margin notes. So I'm sure Jeff Cooper, you know, as a young boy, uh, this was a very popular book you know, like any kind of, you know, uh, you know, memoir, war memoir, like they are today, uh, you know, it was a very popular book and it influenced a lot of these guys that later on became, you know, key roles in the practical shooting movement. Um, the book you mentioned, Ed McGivern, again, uh, you know, uh, he was kind of a, Ed McGivern was, he, he wasn't a professional. He was kind of a trick shard artist. He was a sign painter. He had a very mon- mundane job. Uh, but he became a trick shot artist. He would be, you know, he, he would be uh, much admired by a lot of the speed shooters of today because uh, he could shoot five shots into a playing card in 0.57 seconds with a with a Smith and Wesson revolver. And I think people would be hard pressed to repeat that. Um, now you could say, well, he wrote about that. Uh, a lot of his material is archived on on film. Um, he had a uh, he had a money backer, uh, a very uh, wealthy uh, man from Philadelphia, um, who started the Electrolux vacuum company that essentially, uh, um, you know, gave money for McGivern's experimentation with the, you know, with the uh, handguns. Uh, he also trained Western police forces and the FBI. Um, Nearly all those early proponents of practical shooting, again, have this book, talk about this book. Uh, matter of fact, the, the, uh, the, the recent passing of Eldon Carl, who, you know, as you know, and some of the listeners may know, was one of the original combat masters. Uh, Eldon Carl talks about when he walked, when he, after he got out of the Navy, he walked into a gun shop and bought a, Smith and Wesson revolver and a, uh, and a copy of Ed McGivern's book. And essentially he learned how to shoot by using Ed McGivern's book. So, uh, you know, when you mentioned McBride going to Canada to join the, their military at the outset of the great war, it prompted a thought. And this, this is an end, uh, the document we've been swapping back and forth. 
But, you know, that era of the border between the U.S. and Mexico was an extremely, extremely active and violent era. Um, in part, large numbers of Hispanic Americans, to, in order to avoid being drafted, were fleeing back to Mexico. Yeah. And one of the things the Texas Rangers were trying to catch them and keep them from getting back to Mexico thus to avoid the draft. Well, there was also massive amounts of smuggling bring in alcohol because we're locked in the prohibition and, yeah. and the first and the first drug wars uh the first of the uh, drug laws are being passed and we're dealing with all of that coming across the mexican border but one of the things that kind of is lost to history was there was actually a formulated plan called the plan de santiago which was basically a written plan for a race war in the southwestern united states that was going to be to seize like Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and I think California, yes. backed by the Hispanic people. And they were going to try to create that as a buffer state between the U.S. and Mexico, and then hopefully eventually reunite it in, yeah, and, in Mexico. That, that, was a, that was an intelligence operation by the, by the then Germans right. uh, to, to kind of propagate that. I right. don't think there was any real, right. you know, there was any real... Right. But, uh, yeah, you know some some of the histories claim you know blame it on both sides of the, the the civil war that was going on in Mexico at the time, you know trying to get the U.S. to come in on one side or the other. Um, but you know while there wasn't a massive uprising, there were lots of skirmishes that resulted in that, and there were numerous people that names that we know of that were involved in some of those major battles and skirmishes. Uh, we've already mentioned Frank Hamer. But another name that comes out of that is Bill Jordan. I know he's later on in our timeline. Mm-hmm. But you have Bill Jordan. You have Charlie Askins, um, which who was probably, well, I think he described himself as a psychopathic killer. Um, so, and that's <laughs> just saying it himself. Oh, you, you, we we <laughs> might as well throw in George Patton mm-hmm. in there too. Right. Because, uh, George Patton was an Olympic level uh, pistol shot. And you know, there is some argument that he may have been the gold medal winner of the 1912 uh, military pentathlon, uh-huh. which involved swimming, saber, horseback riding, and pistol shooting. And uh, um, Patton came in fourth place, so he missed the medals. But what they what they argue happened, and there's probably good evidence of it, that he shot such a tight group that his round, all his rounds weren't counted because some of the the right. bullets went through the, the bigger hole. So, you know, so, yeah. and then f- famously, uh, he was involved in those border skirmishes where right. he, he killed uh, uh, several lieutenants uh, of uh, Pancho Villa in pistol, in pistol play. Right. Um, much of the military that, that was later sent to Europe had to be recalled from Mexico. So they could be reorganized and sent to Europe for the Great War. Uh, but, you know, out of that era, uh, and then that was called the Bandit Wars. There's a lot of the, that's kind of in the name. John Bosenbecker's book yes. uh, about uh, Frank Hamer's an excellent read for that era, era of history. But you, know, you had Charlie Askins wrote several influential books. And, you know, that is a very forgotten era in American history that I think needs to be remembered as far as one, just for the historical aspects of it, but two, some of the firearms things that came out of it. Uh, you know, Bill Jordan is probably the most prolific 
yeah. of that area and the name that everybody would mention. Uh, but that's where we're kind of coming to up from there and then coming right. into to this. Well, I, another, similar to that is a fascinating period overseas is the uh, British China constabulary experience where you had Sykes and Bearbane, uh, two officers. Uh, and what, what this was is they were British law enforcement that was uh, in the uh, international zone in Shanghai back in the ni- 19, 1910, you know, to essentially the, the late 40s. Uh, Sykes and Fairbane were heavily involved in training this force um, in methods of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, pistol shooting, uh, riot control. They actually taught jujitsu and judo. Uh, you know, um, I, I believe it was uh, Fairbane who went over to J- Tokyo and learned actually from uh, police officers, you know, where judo and jujitsu were developed. Um, uh, they were uh, knife fighting, again, because they were doing all kinds of crime control and riot control in, you know, the near ungoverned space of uh, of uh, of China. Uh, Fairbane was involved in 600 fights, uh, whether it was combatives or shootouts. Uh, interestingly, if, if anybody can, uh, you know, can get permissions through the U.S. archives, uh, the U.S. archives has all the records of the uh, China constabulary. Uh, they were um, luckily taken out uh, by U.S. Marines in 1949 when you had the fall of China to the communist, to Mao's communist China, and they ended up going into U.S. intelligence files. Interestingly, those files were used in the 1950s to find several communist spies. So, you know, the, the good work that those guys did, you know, during that period ended up paying dividends many, even <laughs> many, many years later. Um, you know, it, it was a rough time. Uh, Fairbane developed what he called instinctive aiming. Now, he documents that he based this on his interpretation and adaption of Western gunfighter methods from the dime novels. So so he's essentially basing these techniques on something that was in reality a myth. Um, I just find that kind of funny. Uh, uh, I mentioned the Marines. The Marines had a heavy play there in China in the 1920s and 30s. And they actually trained with Fairbane and Sykes. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Kelly McCann, uh, did his uh, uh, thesis for Marine Corps Command and Staff School uh, on the Marines in China and the combatives programs. And uh, he, he found some tremendous data and photographs of that era of what it was like, you know, on the streets of you know, Shanghai during those days. And it was a, you know, it was like the border, rough, rough areas. Like I got a feeling. So, yeah. Um, it's funny how you get some of the, the people who are just passionately devoted to Fairbanks writings. If you mentioned that perhaps some of those methods were adopted because the sites were so poor on their guns that there was no uh, need to use you know, them. I think there's something to that. And, you know, I know, I know uh, Tom Gibbons, you know, he has several of those, actual guns and, you know, admittedly, you know, the sights on those guns are minuscule. Uh, Also, most of the work was being done in the dark. 
you know, in these like ghettos of uh, opium dens and, you know, the, you know, back streets, you know, of, uh, you know, slums of uh, China, you know, so they're, they're in a dark environment. They have minuscule sites, you know, maybe the only thing they could have done is this instinctive aiming or point aiming, Mm -hmm. you know, however you want to uh, describe it. Um, During that time period, you also had uh, FBI influence and that's early FBI. And what happened is when the late 1920s, when the FBI had to start dealing with, uh, you know, uh, gunplay with hardened criminals, mostly involved in the prohibition, uh, illegal alcohol sale, you know, the, the FBI was pretty much made up of lawyers and accountants. And what they had to do now that they were getting involved in gunplay, they went out and hired some real gunmen. And uh, there's a whole bunch of these guys that, you know, came out of usually Midwestern police departments. And most notably, uh, Jerry Campbell and Jelly Bryce, uh, Delmont Bryce, uh, were from the Oklahoma uh, City Police Department. And, uh, you know, they were real gunslingers and uh, they kind of developed a, you know, no sight squatting position that I would say they were almost mimicking some of the artwork uh, from uh, those dime novels. Some of that artwork amazingly looks like some of those photos we have of Jerry Campbell and Jelly Bryce. Again, I can't find any documentation of that, but that's too close, you know, to, uh, to overlook. Uh, what I will tell you, I had a lot of association with the FBI um, and the FBI was still kind of using those techniques up until the eighties. And I can tell you for fact in their gun cleaning room in, in Quantico, there was like a half a dozen full size mirrors that you would practice, you know, this style, you know, of, squatting and no sights and people would practice in the mirror to get it down perfect and when you went out on the range to qualify they would actually yell at you for sighting the pistol (laughs) you know as crazy as that sounds (laughs) but uh pretty much up until the mid 80s i'm pretty sure those dates they were still uh doing that uh you know carrying on the john rice uh you know technique um so uh you know, that, that, that's, and I think Bruce talked about that. A previous guest uh, spoke, uh, spoke about that. I, I think that was earlier than his times too, but <laughs> I think he knew about it. Well, you know, I'm sitting here kind of amused as you're talking about, you know, they're practicing these things that they saw in their, in the dime novels. And then in the early Hollywood, I will confess, you know, being at home from school over the summer and watching Gunsmoke and Bonanza reruns in Big Valley, and then I had a a, a little single action twenty two pistol, and I put it on in a, in a holster, and I walk out, and I about their hip shooting ant beds in the pasture, you know. So I can very readily see, you know, Delph Bryce out in the prairie of Oklahoma practicing all of this stuff, and then he actually goes in Oklahoma City and starts using it for real, yeah. um, and then gets basically a, becomes a one man SWAT team that the FBI sends around to to either kill or capture major criminals. Absolutely. Yeah. Very interesting period of our history. And I'm, I'm not sure that definitive book has been written about, you know, that, uh, yeah. that uh, um, time. Um, you know, 
Go ahead. Hey, well, I just want to say, and just for the historical correct record, if for some reason, 30 years from now, somebody's doing a podcast talking about us. Uh, when I walked around in the woods back then, it was with a Winchester Model 12 and not a not an 870. <laughs> it was a Winchester Model 12 and 20 gauge that my grandfather had uh, shortened the stock and shortened the barrel on because he was only 5'7", 135 pounds. <laughs> and so he had customized it to fit him. And it fit a uh, you know, 12, 13-year-old boy pretty good, too. Well, you know, again, I grew up on military bases. Yeah. That's the first pistol I bought at 14 years old off a uh, major that was uh, showed up at the pistol range I was at one Saturday. And I uh, drove up in a, like a 67 Corvette. He got it out of car, out of car <laughs> with this. And he says, $150 takes it. So I ran up to him and said, sir, <laughs> you know, can I buy that from you? you know, he's like, here's this 14-year-old kid. You know, God. You know, 45, and uh, he ends up, he drove me home to my dad's quarters, and my, luckily my mother had a hundred, you know, fifty dollars in the cookie jar, and uh, and I got this uh, gun from him, a half case of ammo, about 10 magazines, and an old GI holster. I don't know if I was more excited about getting a gun or getting a ride in a 67 Corvette. <laughs> Equally impressive. Yeah. Equally impressive. So, uh, yeah. You know, to, to kind of bring Fairbane and Sykes together um, a little bit later is World, World War II starts. And, uh, you know, the American military, you know, was behind the curve and we had a very small military, uh, probably not well versed in the modern uh, warfare techniques and uh, um, definitely not in, you know, cold hard pistol you know, shooting. And uh, there was a individual uh, named uh, Captain uh, Rex Applegate, who was an MP captain. And he was the uh, commander of the MP platoon that uh, protected uh, um, what was then called Shangri-La, which is now known as Camp David, where the president would retreat to usually on weekends. And the then president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's fifth cousin or something like that. Um, and Rex Applegate kind of became a favorite of, F of FDR. And uh, he used to put on trick shooting displays. You know, Applegate was kind of a uh, Western guy. I think he grew up in like Washington State and was well, well versed in uh, pistol because, of course, he had read Edna Givern. Okay. And, uh, he quickly uh, was recruited into what was called the Office of Strategic Services, which is the predecessor of the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, Applegate was sent to British Commando School, uh, and he met Fairbane. And he fell in with Fairbane and, you know, learned all his techniques. And uh, the British allowed Fairbane to come to the United States to train initial group of uh, American Army uh, intelligence officers. Matter of fact, there's this rather interesting uh, training film that was produced back then. You can find it on YouTube called OSS Training Group. And uh, the British soldier, they, they're all wearing masks to keep their cover. Um, and the, the 
fella in the British Army uniform who is 60 years old, a very fit 60-year-old, uh, is uh, actually Fairbay in, the, uh, in, in, that, uh, in that video. Uh, the other guy, the, the big fella, in the American soldier, uh, is actually Rex Applegate. You know, and uh, um, Fairbane shows in that video, which is about 45 minutes long, his point shooting technique, his instinctive shooting technique, uh, some hand-to-hand combatives. Uh, you, you can see from some of the photo close-ups that, you know, uh, he bears the brunt of those 600 fights. He has scars all over his hands and, and face and, uh, and bullet holes, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, even though Fairbairn, you got to remember, he's in his 60s when he's training these young, you know, military intelligence officers in like 1942. So it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, video. Uh, those of the audience that are uh, firearms instructors, uh, be prepared to be shocked at their gun handling uh, uh, technique. <laughs> so, uh, but it's a little interesting piece of history. There you go. Um, you know, some of the guys we've already mentioned, such as Bill Jordan and um, Askins, left the Border Patrol and joined the Marines yes. and the Army, and they went, went to combat and then came back and went back into their law enforcement jobs. Absolutely. Um, Askins was fairly well known for he, – he was – I forget what his military – specialty was it was, a, was, an, ordinance. He ordinance. was an ordinance officer. Uh, but he was kind of known for uh taking a rifle and going out and hunting down enemy snipers absolutely <laughs> yeah he, he was a well-practiced uh combat rifleman let's say yeah i i think it, there was a passage in one of his books where he said I, I i only hunt animals because they won't let me hunt men anymore yeah or something to that effect and like i said folks he self-describes himself as a psychopathic killer um and i'm not saying that to glorify him by any means um and he was uh, there's no soft way to say it he was pretty staunch racist and big i mean that that war brought a lot of people that became you know the early adherents of practical shooting Mm -hmm. jeff cooper marine big game hunter educator you know he's a college professor in southern california uh john george who was uh um probably the least of the well-known people I'll mention today. Uh, he was a, um, he was a member, he was an officer, uh, a scout platoon officer in Merrill's Marauders. Uh, he was also the national rifle and pistol champion, like 1939, 1940. Uh, he was a big game hunter. He was a U.S. ambassador. I, I knew him uh, rather well. He was, he was my rifle coach uh, when I was younger. Uh, he hunted, sheep in Iran with the Shah of Iran. Uh, he, he was a real interesting character and a phenomenal rifle shooter. I mean, he, two, 300 yards moving targets, every round in the A zone. I mean, he, he was not only a, you know, a well-schooled target shooter, but he was a well-schooled combat shooter. Um, I mentioned my mentor, John Pepper, who was a BAR uh, infantryman, he was the inventor of Pepper Popper. He was a rifle champion and uh, early evangelist of practical shooting 
uh, and a great correspondent of, uh, uh, he and Cooper carried on a 40 year correspondence that I found uh, documentation of when I was in Cooper's office uh, back last year. So, uh, and John just was, uh, uh, you know, interesting guy and a, a great man. He was a working guy, you know, he, uh, he was a home construction, you know, guy, which led him to make these things called pepper poppers. He never made one nickel off the pepper popper. Um, I, uh, if, if anybody wants to see uh, Carl Wren, I passed Carl Wren uh, the blueprints of the, uh, of the original pepper popper and uh, Carl has it on his webpage. So if anybody wants to see the original um, uh, design for a pepper popper, they can find it there. Uh, somebody else who was a, a, the first practical combat pistol world champion uh, started, you know, uh, the Academy of Practical Shooting in Columbia, Missouri. And the Bianchi Cup is Ray Chapman. Ray Chapman joined the Marine Corps underage and fought in the Battle of Okinawa. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, Ray uh, was one of the early combat masters of the Southwest Pistol League. Um, and I guess there's a there's a big event that was real popular in this era that we probably ought to bring up as well, and that would be the Camp Perry matches. Yeah, and you know they they've been kind of forgotten, and but you have to think of Camp Perry almost like today's shot show, where you go there to get the passage of information, what's going on in the industry, who's developing what, you know, and that's what then you know Camp Perry was about. And its influence was from the 1920s to probably the 1970s. And uh, it was one of the few venues where civilians could shoot with police and military and, you know, and, and that. So, and they had a commercial row and you, you lived in barracks when you went to Camp Perry. And, uh, you know, everybody kind of hung out and uh, talked about guns and find out what was going on around the country and modifications to guns and, you know, that, that's where you learned it. Uh, the Ohio National Guard Ordnance Gunsmithing Shop used to put on little, um, you know, seminars on 1911s, you know, Garands and, you know, M1As uh, on, you know, how to make them more accurate. Uh, and J. Henry Fitzgerald would set up at a table and I, would do trigger jobs on people's Colts. Absolutely. So um, what I'll tell you is when I went in Camp Perry, like in the, 60s and 70s, there would be about 2,500 shooters. Like in the 50s, there was like 5,000. A friend of mine still shoots uh, that game, and he said there was about 125 this year. So right. that, that's how far, far the influence of that has fallen. Uh, right. we, you know, then we have the, the advent of uh, police practical PP, PPC. And again, it, it became a, a a way for civilians to compete and also to shoot alongside, you know, law enforcement officers. And when I, when I first started shooting, that was a game I, you know, was involved with was PPC. And then we come to leather slaps. And it's, you know, uh, Cooper, uh, Jeff Cooper kind of started it in 1956, 1957 up in the uh, mountains surrounding Los Angeles, up at Big Bear Ski Ski Resort. Now, interestingly, the reason it was there 
is Cooper's wife's family had invested in the ski resort and Cooper owned a home up there <laughs> and they were looking for ways to, uh, you know, bring tourism there during the non-ski season. And uh, they had like an old West day where again, during this time period, TV Westerns were very big. Everybody dressed up as cowboys and miners. It was like this historical day. And Cooper convinced them to have like a, a shooting competition. And the shooting competition was you shoot at steel and balloons and it was man on man. And, you know, they would draw, you know, and again, it's point shooting, you know, not looking at the sights. And, uh, and so that, that's kind of the beginning of this practical, you know, pistol shooting, um, you know, competition, but kind of still based you know, you could draw the lineage to the dime novels. Now, we all know the story that Jack Weaver, one, you know, uh, used two hands, put the gun up to his eye eyesight, and uh, he won the leather slap. Well, kind of what's completely forgotten is, yes, he did win the second leather slap. But the first and the next six were won by guys that point shot <laughs> Um, so it wasn't like this aha moment that like everybody saw him, you know, aim and, and, uh, use two hands that everybody went running to that. Matter of fact, Cooper, you can find in the writings just said it looked odd to him and he really didn't embrace it until maybe a year or so later. And as you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. he starts kind of studying it and researching it and, you know, writing it. So, you know, we do have to, you know, thank, you know, Weaver for bringing that, but, you know, it wasn't this earth shattering moment of, of uh, time where everybody immediately started, you know, you know, uh, uh, replicating his style. Um, You know, he, the reason he did that is, uh, you know, he kind of gained it. He showed up with a Smith and Wesson model 14 you know, K-38, which was essentially the factory, you know, match gun, you know, highly, highly accurate, you know, uh, you know, uh, it, it was like the Smith & Wesson match, uh, uh, you know, gun. So he used that gun and he watched people shoot the balloons and everybody would miss. And he said, literally, they would fire six shots and the, the balloon would still be sanding, people would be <laughs> laughing. And he said, hey, if I just take the extra time and aim, I may not be as fast, but I'll hit it. And that's what he he did and used. And that one time he did win. We just have to remember that Eldon Carl and Thel Reed won it the next six times right. using essentially, you know, point shooting or whatever you want to call it. Right. And, you know, it's funny, you, you talk about it not being like this big defining moment in history and like, the next day, everybody across the country is out practicing what we now call the Weaver. You know, one of the things in historiography is they talk about is that historians, because they're looking at things after the fact, they tend to draw bright lines and give names to things that the people that were involved in the contemporary events would not recognize. Yeah, you know, the Byzantines consider themselves Romans and would not know who you were talking about if you referred to the Byzantines. And it's not like, you know, we 
the historic history books will say on this date, it's now the Byzantine period moving forward. And really and truly, it was like an intermixing period over yeah. years. And yeah, and, and again, this isn't meant to be definitive. Right. It's just imposing these mm-hmm. concepts out to people, and you can draw what you want from it. But right. you know, we're we're trying to lay out some context. And right. you know, after the success of the leather slaps, and they were successful, they were highly popular. You know, guys wanted to do it, but they didn't necessarily want to drive way up into the mountains. You know, three hours away to go do it. So they started shooting at various venues around the LA basin area, you know, San Bernardino, you know, Pasadena, you know, there was a, a bunch of places and it formed into what became known as the Southwest Pistol League. And then you had such luminaries that came out of that, you know, kind of the match winners were Cooper, Weaver, Fell Reed, Ray Chapman, uh, John Flan, who is always forgotten because he's not in the famous photo of the comp, combat masters and Eldon Carl. And what we have is those guys by winning the matches and being influencers and everybody trying to emulate them, we finally break the orthodoxy of the dime novels. It, it can be argued that Eldon Carl probably developed the isosceles technique. Again, it's very difficult who did what when, but we do have photos of Eldon Carl. It looks like the isosceles, you know, some version of the isosceles technique to me. And, you know, the thing about a lot of these guys, these guys were great athletes. You know, Eldon Carl, I mean, was a freaking stud. So was Ray Chapman. Um, you know, you look at pictures of Jack, you know, Weaver. I mean, he is a strong, you know, guy. I mean, big hands, you know, big wrists, just a strong guy. And but the, the key is they broke away from the dime novel and started aiming, started using different position techniques. Uh, John Flan was a he had a degree in uh, uh, he had a degree in physical education. And he was the guy who kind of talked to Cooper about what Weaver was doing, you know, isometric technique. You know, it was through these kinesic, you know. Term, you know, verbiage that Flan was familiar with because he, you know, he was a educated, you know, phys ed teacher. He kind of brought those to Cooper, and then Cooper started writing about it. You know, and that's where that all kind of problemated was that you know Cooper was a highly educated guy. He was a he was he taught uh, college in Southern California. You know, he's a writer. You know, and he documented these you know things and you know what was going on out there. Um, Again, his seminal article, he wrote several books, but the article that I say has influence is he wrote about the uh, practical shooting in that was majorly produced in the 1971 Gun Digest. Well, what happened is there was all kinds of guys around the United States doing this. You know, there was, uh, um, you know, guys in Washington, D.C. area that I was familiar with, John Pepper, Bob Cravato who was a secret service agent. Uh, Bob had been stationed out in LA. So he had competed in the Southwest Pistol League. And he kind of brought that knowledge when he got stationed at, you know, the headquarters in Washington. Uh, Mike Torresano, he was a police officer up in upstate New York. Jim Chirillo and uh, 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 Bill Ahern out in Long Island. Rick Miller and Ken Hackathorn in Ohio. Dick Thomas 
in St. Louis, Walt Roush in Philadelphia. You know, these guys kind of were out there doing it on their own. They weren't writing about it. They weren't writing in gun magazines. But all of a sudden, here's this one guy. Wow. He's got his address in Pasadena, California at the end of this article. They all start writing to him. And now this information starts getting passed around the country. You know, we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Zoom calls. You know, that's the way it went, you know, through written correspondence and long phone calls. I mean, I can tell you about uh, having like a four-hour conversation on the phone with John Pepper of him explaining some tactical concept to me. And three days later, I received a 17-page on both sides of the paper of everything he forgot to tell me. (laughs) Again, (laughs) this is the way it was passed, you know, know, around, Uh, you know, so... It wasn't just guys in Southern California doing this. And I'm sure there was guys in Georgia. I'm sure there were, you know, I, I think Higginbottom up in Kentucky was an early ad- adherent. Um, you know, uh, you, you've mentioned him several times, Bill Jordan. Bill Jordan came out with a book in 1965 called No Second Place Winner. And I will guarantee you, I will guarantee a Lee, any cop that was a gun guy he had an autographed copy of this book. If, if some guy who is a cop during that period who says he was a gun guy, if he, don't, if he didn't have this book, no, he wasn't. You know, uh, you know, as you mentioned, career border patrol agent. He was a, a Marine veteran of World War II and Korea. Uh, influential holster designer. I mean, how many cops wore the Jordan River holster? You know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I know Tom Givens, uh, you know, befriended Bill Jordan later in his life and, you know, had some, you know, uh, amusing episodes, you know, with Jordan. But, you know, Jordan was a gentleman, a fantastic national, you know, ranked uh, pistol shot and, you know, a gunslinger of the, uh, you know, first first order. Right. Um, You know, as all this is happening, and Cooper's basically codifying the doctrine that we now know as the modern technique. And as gun sites happen, and we have a very pivotal event that takes place in California, and that's the Newhall incident. Absolutely. And, you know, after much discussion with John Hearn, I've added that. Uh, because essentially it became, uh, these four California Highway Patrolmen were killed uh, um, in an incident that you can bring John Hearn on to talk to you at length about. Uh, but th- the main thing is, because of their death, uh, it kind of highlighted the importance of training and tactics. And this incident was kind of the beginning of what became the police officer survival movement, right. where you know they really started stressing tactics. You know, in the academies, Ac- academies started getting professionalized teaching methods, and you well know that from your right. graduate, you know, studies. Yeah, but it right. it was a a, a real pivotal uh, moment because it, it brought to the forefront the importance of training and tactics. Right. And I, one thing we can't discount too, is that, okay, who were the rookie cops during this era? Absolutely. They were a bunch of Vietnam veteran guys Absolutely. coming back and they're looking around going, uh, yeah, they're standing here in this one spot shooting bullseye. This ain't fighting. 
So who we have coming out of Vietnam and also Africa experiences is guys like Ken Hackathorn, you know, um, a founding member of both the IPSC and, I, and IDPA. Chuck Taylor, who was a longtime gunsight chief instructor. Clint Smith, longtime gunsmith, uh, gunsight instructor. Louis Arbach, you know, uh, great instructor. Uh, a, a, a less well-known guy, uh, Mike Weiderlich, who just passed away. He was a professional police officer in Southern California, I believe up in San Bernardino. He was um, one of the... Was uh, starts with a B. And I, I messed it up in an episode. Not San Bernardino. It's uh, Bakersfield. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, you know, Mike was a, uh, a Special Forces uh, uh, member. Um, he, uh, he was one of the first gunsight instructors um and he developed uh, it's kind of been forgotten he developed essentially what became the 21 foot rule and he developed a, a little qualification to, you know he looked at the tactics uh, and the uh, experiences they were having in his department and he kind of said we're, we're getting we're getting in gunfights over to, over car less well guess how long a car was yeah you know, which ended up being the tooler drill, but I, I don't think Mike, you know, has received a lot of the credit he probably deserves. Uh, he was a very innovative Southern California cop, and I, he just recently passed away, I yeah. believe this year or last year. You know, it's interesting if you look at uh, the notes on the old Bakersfield call, and I think Kelly McCann had, had yep. some input in that. Yep. Um, like the distance would be given for what the next stage was, but then there was a note, you know, like, we're going to shoot this one at 20 feet. That's the distance from the sidewalk to the front door. Yeah. You know, what happens now, we see a lot of times on domestics is the car pulls up, the cop gets out of the car and that's where he gets ambushed. Yeah. Okay. And then here in the seventies, you had Mike Wade, which is looking at, okay. <laughs> yeah. We need to be training our guys because this is a frequent uh, engagement yeah. distance that they're dealing with. And then we have somebody you well know after going through uh, his experiencing his training as LAPD SWAT's Larry Mudgett. Uh, you have Mike Harry's kind of a flashlight technique fame, John Farnham, you know, moving steel targets and kind of the modern version of Fitzgerald where John starts up kind of the first traveling, you know, he kind of reinvents the traveling uh, instructor. Uh, I, I took a, uh, First time I met John, I think it was in 1981. He was still a cop in Detroit, and uh, he drove all night from Detroit to uh, to uh, the State Department outside of Washington D.C. in a Ford Fairmont station wagon. And I remember that thing going down the road like that <laughs> because uh, it had all this steel and ammunition in the back. Uh, I'll never forget uh, John. Uh, he was the first guy I ever saw teach a manual of arms with a, for a shotgun where like how to actually load it and unload it without just jacking them onto the ground. I mean, we were, there's like 30 guys in this class and we we're like, wow, that's, I mean, that was like the neatest thing we saw. This guy actually had a technique for professionally loading and unloading a shotgun. I mean, that was blew our minds. We're taking photographs of the technique because it was like so nice. Just I, I always laugh about that with uh, John. Yeah, so and then we have, 
well, on that, I taught a shotgun school for the agency today. And uh, I'm teaching the loading and the unloading. I bring a bunch of dummy rounds so we can do all this, you know, standing in, in place of comfort and without hearing protection. And I don't have to worry about the guns going off because they're dummy rounds. Yeah. Uh, all the loading and the unloading techniques. And I explain, you know, look, one reason for doing this instead of running it through the action is because you're not going to damage the brass you know, with the extractor ripping on it, this, you're not going to have the crimp coming undone. And the other thing is when you're standing out in the parking lot, racking the rounds out, you're announcing to the world that you don't know what you're doing. Yes. And one of, one of the guys just kind of said, well, I'm glad I came today because now I'll know not to do that. That's how he'd been unloading the shotgun. Absolutely. I mean, it was just this mind blowing piece of training that mm-hmm. John gave us in 1980 or 81. And then we, we shouldn't forget the late Pat Rogers from NYPD. Um, 1976, IPSC is founded in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, about that period, during the same time, uh, Cooper develops this teaching methodology and the modern technique of pistol. He develops a POI that essentially influences generations of instructors up to today. And I know most of them wouldn't admit that essentially they are following the POI that was proclamated at the American Pistol Institute in Paulden, Arizona. So again, we owe it to Cooper that put this all together, codified it, developed a POI that influences us to today. Um, So I talk a little bit about the development of the 1911. Um, You know, and there was a lot of people, you get in trouble if you try to historically define who did what in gunsmithing. (laughs) Because you could say some guy, you know, Armin Swenson did. You talk to somebody, oh, no, no, Jim Hogue was doing that and Swenson got it from him. Then you'll talk to somebody in the East Coast. Now, Austin Baylor was doing that, you know. And so... I, I don't want to kind of try to pinpoint where certain developments came about, but you had the uh, military's, you know, uh, weapons training battalions and the AMU, you know, we're developing, you know, 1911 uh, gunsmithing, uh, you know, methods because they were trying to win matches. Uh, so a lot of, you know, the trigger jobs and tightening the barrels and tightening frames kind of came out of this period. You had Packmeyer Gun Shop, you had King Gunworks, Armin Swenson, but you also have, you know, guys, uh, you know, like uh, Wayne Novak, uh, uh, Hogue, Austin Baylor, you know, they were doing the same thing. The one thing I'll point out, though, is the greatest improvement for the 1911 was Charlie Kelsey essentially uh, improving the magazine reliability of the 1911. And then it was commercialized by Chip McCormick, who, again, just passed away. So the the viewers on YouTube are going to be able to see this. I have a Charlie Kelsey magazine and a GI stock magazine. Lift that up a little higher. Yeah, during those days, you know, everybody shot, you know, essentially World War II issue magazines. That's what we had. Well, with these improvements to the gun and also people tweaking loads, you know, the pistol loads where we're not using, um, you know, GI 230 grain ball, um, 
the magazines were the sticking point of reliability. And before Charlie Kelsey came along, gunsmiths used to fit magazines. You can look at old gunsmith um, price, you know, price lists, and we'll talk about fitting a magazine. And what they're, they were talking about is, you know, bending the feed lips, maybe even milling down the feed lips. So as the round came off the magazine and the slide would pick it up or the breech would pick it up, it would make a, a smooth transition, you know, into the chamber. The other problem was you're dealing with something that was 30, 40 years old and the springing rates were, you know, a little oh. bad. Well, Charlie Kelsey, he actually developed where he milled, he milled the magazine out and, you know, Chip McCormick commercialized it and, you know, Bill Wilson, you know, it came about and, you know, it made the 1911, uh, platform, you know, kind of reliable. Well, interestingly, shortly after that, you had the advent of a lot of other good semi-automatic pistols, you know, like the Glock came about, you know, shortly after that. So, you know, yet you have a lot of, you know, holster design. You got Bianchi with mass production, Gordon Davis with uh, custom stuff. Um, You have Bruce Nelson, who was a undercover narcotics officer in California. And he made a concealed appendix carry holster. This is one of Bruce's holsters. And the reason he designed it this way is he would shove the 1911 down in his pants in the appendix carry. And it has this little snap that would hold it into the belt. Well, the reason it was designed this way is so he could quickly ditch the gun. If he, was going on to a buy and he thought they might search him and he didn't want him to find him with a gun, he could quickly ditch the gun and the holster. Because if the holster is hooked into your belt, you know, you're going to have a hard time doing that, you know, surreptitiously. So that's the reason this was designed. Back in the 70s, this is the way we carried 1911s. Inside the waistband, sometimes appendix, sometimes at, you know, four o'clock. So appendix isn't a uh, modern, recent thing as the internet would lead us as near as i could tell uh i can find uh photographic documents of cowboys real working cowboys in uh the 1880s carrying appendix there is a 1925 uh american uh rifleman article showing an appendix carry with a summer you know a bruce nelson like holster of the time so again you get in real trouble Mm-hmm. trying to put dates to a lot of these things. But what I can tell you is it wasn't invented a couple of years ago. Right. Uh, so um, then we have, you know, uh, what was 1964 plastic holster was called thermoformed where people were experimenting with, uh, you know, with uh, plastic holsters. And then in the seventies, we had this, very interesting holster called a snick. And the reason it was called snick is because it made a noise like snick. Now you notice the way I had to get the gun out of the holster. Mm-hmm. I, it's like a brake pump holster. Yep. This thing was faster than Al Snuck. The only problem is you had to hit your draw perfect. And it quickly got overridden by a guy named Bill Rogers. 
And Bill was an FBI agent that was kind of um, taking a leave of absence and he was experimenting. I don't think it was called Kydex. It was called something else Mm -hmm. at the time, but something very similar Kydex. And then he developed a much better and mass produced, you know, plastic Kydex holster. Of course, Bill went on to start the uh, Bill Rogers shooting school too. And he was also the designer of most of Safari Land's holster products. Absolutely. So, you know, great influence. So, and, well, and and many other things outside of holster design. The man's a just a brilliant, absolutely. brilliant, brilliant inventor. Uh, yeah. Just to give the audience a little insight into how early in his life he began inventing things as a teenager, so that he could shoot more trap and skeet. Developed a process for getting lead shot out of a pond on a skeet range so that he could use it to reload and he made a smelter so that he could take pick up the pieces of the broken clay pigeons and make new clay pigeons out of them yeah. like i said really yeah. interesting character yeah we then we had 1980 we have larry mudgett john helms lapd uh they attended gunsite and uh they essentially brought back the modern technique to LAPD and all of Southern California because of LAPD's influence in Southern California policing. And essentially Southern California policing becomes the crucible of real world testing for the methods of the modern technique. And there was a tremendous amount of conversation and correspondence between Majid, Widerlich, and Cooper to kind of like, okay, what's actually happening on the street? What's working? And there was some refinement you know, uh, of the, you know, of, of the modern, you know, technique by Cooper, you know, cause he saw the value of what, you know, this real work testing was, you know, showing what was valid in, you know, in his POI and also his technique. So we, we shouldn't forget that that's the one thing that Southern California policing brought to us is they were, because of their proximity mm-hmm. to gun site, they could get the gun site in, you know, half a day, right. you know, they, they could go there and exchange ideas and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, shortly after this period, uh, you have the Iranian uh, embassy in London that was taken over and the British Sikh, uh, uh, special air service uh, did a hostage rescue uh, on that shortly followed by LAPD or excuse me, the LA Olympics, the 1984 LA Olympics. And all of a sudden on TV, we start seeing uh, HKMP5s, uh, leg holster, like this one. This is a FBI leg holster from that period. Uh, Lights on guns. Now they were on there with like uh, hose gaskets from cars and uh, you know, uh, rubber tire, inner tube tires. Uh, and also the American public really got the real view of LAPD SWAT. Now there, there was a TV show and all that, but now we see the real deal. And I will tell you during that period, that was an influence. Everybody had to have a leg holster. Everybody had to get an MP5. You know, every police department had MP5s, you know, within months after that hey gary i just switched the camera view so that the viewers can just see you while you're speaking okay. uh, that way you'll be able to get a better 
view of what that holster was. And if you would show the belt attachment there. Yeah, the belt attachment was specifically designed so it would go on a military accruement belt. And what you do is you put it on the belt and that way you could take it off if you had to rearrange your gear um, or if you were going to you know, get rid of it. It also has a, um, you know, an elastic uh, leg thing. It also has, it's got a snap retention on it. Yeah, I know that'll get you killed on the street, but <laughs> it was the hot lick in, you know, the early 1980s. So I still use this holster. I used it when I deployed to several places in the last 20 years. It's, it's, it's still a very good holster. Right. Um, yeah. And as Bruce Cartwright mentioned in the last episode, that's kind of when uh, FBI's HRT was stood up, was for yeah. the 84 Olympics. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, then John Hearn will be happy. We're going to mention the Miami <laughs> uh, shootout, which I think Bruce covered, you know, rather, rather well. But, you know, what it really did is it, it brought about some really influential guys in federal law enforcement. And, and Bruce mentioned a couple of them in the previous show from the FBI, Bill Rogers, John Walsh, John Hall, Bob Talbert. You know, these guys were really pushed a very staid, you know, agency into the modern times. Uh, and it was through the, the, the work of those guys. And I'm, I'm not sure it would have happened without those personalities. Uh, the Secret Service um, was uh, influenced by Bob Cravato and Gary Wistram. Uh, the interesting thing about those two guys is they were two guys that were real gunslingers, but they made it to the upper management echelons of the agency, which, as you well know, is not the norm uh, that you have like gunslinger tactics guys that make it up to the number two and three, you know, uh, people of, of a federal agency that just doesn't happen. And that's really about the only way to drive any major influence. Absolutely. And those guys were able to do that. Uh, and with, let me rephrase that. That's really the only way to drive any major influence without some sort of pivotal, horrible event that forces change. Yeah. Um, we have the introduction of the Brad of the Glock and other well-designed semi-auto firearms, uh, right. you know, during this period, you know. Uh, so now we have like this influx of pretty damn good guns, you know, made for practical you know, shooting and serious work. Because prior to that, you really didn't have it. You had K-frames, you know, Smith & Wesson K-frames, you had 1911s, you know, and uh, that was about it. You know, that was uh, reliable fighting guns. Well, in a short amount of time, you know, and I, I would contend a lot of that came about because of computer modeling, CNC machining techniques. It kind of brings about a revolution in cartridge bullet design and also firearms parts. You know, a lot of this stuff just wasn't easy to get. Now, all of a sudden, they're cranked out relatively easily. You know, they're commercialized. You can buy them off the shelf, order them, you know, uh, out of a magazine. And, you know, it, it makes it out to, you know, the general shooting public. It's funny that you mentioned CNC machining and, and evolution of manufacturing the gun world and gun media is all a buzz this week with uh, the news that Springfield Armory is bringing back a version of the high power mm. calling it the SA 35. And one of the things that I've noticed in several of the reviews are they're talking about things that you would automatically send your, you know, high power out to have done by a gunsmith just as soon as you bought it. 
Springfield's doing that right from the start at the factory and that the tolerances on this gun are tighter due to modern uh, manufacturing techniques. Uh, any comment on that and other modifications? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, a lot of these techniques came out of Southern California because of the aircraft and Department of Defense, you know, industry. You know, they had a, a lot of this, you know, a lot of guy, highly skilled guys, you know, um, kind of influenced a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, it's true. You used to have to, you know, if you would build a, any gun, you would have to sort through handfuls of parts to find the ones that mesh together. And then you would hand work them into fitting even better. Well, you know, now with, you know, you know, highly accurate and repetitive machining processes, this isn't that hard anymore. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you a, a very well-known uh, a gunsmith friend of mine, I won't mention his name, he made he made parts for another well-known uh, uh, highly expensive 1911 uh, custom you know gun maker, and he used to turn out his parts in batches of 250 at a time, you know on on a CNC machine you know in his garage. So you know it's not like he had to worry about Colt or Smith and Wesson developing this. You know, now you had guys that could independently develop it. You know, guys like Wayne Novak could independently develop this stuff, you know, out, you know, out at his home. So. And I um, guess modern contemporaries will be people like Apex. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The other thing is springs. I know, you know, that seems like a very simplistic thing. But again, these new techniques brings about springing technology that now you could tune the, your gun to you, to your loads, to your shooting style, and you could get very reliable, you know, feeding of the gun because you had all these springs that you could, you know, interplay into, into your operating system to make it optimum for you. It used to be, you know, if you had a 1911, you could get a gold cup spring, which I think was 14 pounds, or a national match spring, which was like 18 and a half pounds. That's the only choice you have. Well, now you can get springs from like nine pounds to, you know, 24 pounds, you know, because of that technology, you know, improvement. So uh, in your, in your notes, you referenced some of the other open attendance schools that pop up after gunsight. Yeah. yeah Ray Chapman Academy, uh, Defense Training International. It's a traveling show. It's John Forum. John Shaw, who was a, a great early champion. Uh, he started mid, Mid-South. Uh, the Rogers Shooting School. You know, now kind of across the country, you could, you know, go learn under some, you know, pretty good guys, you know, and uh, learn, you know, learn how to, you know, shoot in open attendance to these schools. Now, there was plenty of guys shooting in dumps outside of Washington, D.C. that were running schools like this, too. You know, and I know I know they were doing it up in upstate New York, too, Um, you know, but nobody was running it as a you know, as a business operation, like the way these guys were doing. Yeah. And we've already kind of touched on, you know, new hall triggering the uh, officer survival movement. And we're starting to see some tactical advances that come out from there. Yeah, absolutely. Who were some influential people yeah, in that? Uh, Ken Good, Ken Murray, you know, simulation, force on force training, surefire flashlights. I mean, when, when surefire showed up with whatever, whatever their first iteration was, I mean, it literally was like seeing in the dark, you know, because prior to that, we had, you know, Kel lights with like three, three cell 
you know, D-cell batteries. You know, I don't know how many lumens it was. <laughs> you know, I don't know, it might have been in the double digits, you know, where all of a sudden, you know, Surefire shows up. And I don't even remember what the first lumen on that, but it was demonstrably better than anything we were using, uh, you know, at, at, you know, at, at the, uh, at the time. So, um, you know, competition advances, you know, finally you have competitors, which you're going to get, you are going to get innovation from competitors. You're not going to get it from law enforcement agencies, whether it's local or federal, it's going to come from guys looking for every advantage, uh, finding efficiencies. And that's the beauty of why you need competitors. And they broke with Weaver. You know, they started formulating their own techniques and efficiencies you know, uh, guys like Mickey Fowler, Mike Dalton, uh, Rob Latham, Brian Enos, Jerry Barnhart. You know, they, they were kind of that first group of, uh, you know, guys that just were demonstrably better than anyone else. Um, and I'll mention one of them a little bit later on. Okay. Uh, All right. Then, yeah. And then we have the uh, starting to see the integration of the tactics with the firearm. Yeah, absolutely. And Kelly McCann, I mentioned Kelly. He's a very good friend of mine. I've known Kelly 35 years, maybe. Uh, he used to, uh, he was a Marine Corps officer. He was in special mission units. Uh, he used to write under, he used to, he used to write and do videos under the nom de plume of uh, Jim Grover. He kind of brought back appendix carry. I will argue that. Uh, he, he brought back appendix carry in the probably, uh, um, mid eighties. Um, he had slight mounted red dot, uh, which was just a crazy thing to do to a fighting pistol. Uh, he brought, brought about the use of ta- tactics and techniques for OC spray. And he, you know, was highly popular on videos, guns and ammo column, uh, that he, he wrote for many years that I know from a lot of guys, they used to avidly read that guns and uh, ammo uh, column that Kelly put out. Um, he was training special military units that were working in very uh, unmilitary situations, and you know he was developing a lot of these techniques, you know, because of the missions that those units were going on. Um, I, I believe Tom Givens, a law enforcement officer out of uh, Memphis, uh, he had a, a commercial range called Range Master in Memphis. Uh, Tennessee. Um, when you know, Tom trained uh, probably what 30,000 people in concealed carry in Tennessee, and he kept uh, very uh, interesting statistics of students of his that were um, involved in gun incidents. And when that came out, that was eye opening for the training community because Tom had developed and refined, I, I believe, I'm sure he would admit, uh, you know, gun sight POI mm-hmm. down to what he knew worked for right. regular old people that probably were going to have a, a minimum of training. And Tom figured that out. And, you know, and I, I think that's what he brought to the uh, practical shooting community. It's kind of a, uh, what, what every uh, technique for every man. Um, yeah. And uh, those tech, the, those statistics were, you know, were, you know, something really for instructors to shift their POI 
on what to focus on, what really meant something in an armed encounter of just a regular civilian, right? You know, protecting his property or his home or something. Uh, then you have John Holshin and Greg Hamilton, uh, both special forces, NCOs, uh, Insights Training Center. Uh, they sort of traveled around the country too. Um, they you know, brought that melding of firearms techniques and tactics you know, way before a lot of people did. Uh, John Benner, TDI uh, in uh, Ohio, uh, Pat Rogers, uh, EAG, you know, Pat trained a lot of military, especially Marine units, but he also kind of brought modern CQB techniques to the law enforcement world. Um, you know, he had a, 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 he had a pretty, pretty good flagpole at Alliance Police Department that he still influences today, even though uh, Pat uh, had passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, a long forgotten guy, uh, Andy Sanford, uh, involved with Surefire Flashlights. Andy's a real character, I'll tell you that. Uh, he told, I spoke to Andy a couple of times. He's writing a, a new book uh, on practical shooting. And uh, you know, Andy kind of grew up in the Southwest Pistol League and he had access to all those guys like Eldon Carl and, and John Flan. And, you know, so uh, it, that might be an interesting book. There you go. Um, the 94 gun ban. Uh, comes along and in your notes you mentioned you know the AR-15 and that made everybody want one and I certainly agree with that premise but I think there's one other thing we need to discuss in that and that also is what led to a lot of the subcompact autos that we see out there now because now that the magazine capacity was limited to 10 you, you got the Glock 26 all of a sudden Glock yeah. just here's here's well, how all the glitz got to be again, 10. Yeah. you know when something's banned you know, people either want it even more or they will try to find something to take its place. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, as much as the anti-gunners, if anything, they drove on innovation and gun sale even more. Right. <laughs> so we ought to thank Bill Clinton for it. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a lever gun guy at heart. And, you know, when it comes to rifles. And the lever gun used to be America's gun as far as rifles goes, but now America's gun is the AR-15. It's the most cost-efficient, the most practical, the most versatile. You know, with a few mouse clicks, you can get an AR set up just like you want to, like you want it for any purpose that you could go out sporting and everything. Prior to the ban, no serious rifle shooter owned a They owned a Garand or M1A. They they didn't. But as soon as it was banned, and it came back off the band, you know, mm-hmm. everybody won. Then you had the concealed carry self-preservation movement. And I think Masayu, prolific author, you know, was very instrumental in that. Yeah, the advent of IDPA, uh, internet age, where now you can, you know, you can write rather easily. You don't have to wait, wait for the mailman uh, to pass on your 17-page letter. Uh, you know, it's instantaneous communication. Uh, another late character, uh, Todd Lewis Green, he, he shot up here in the Washington, D.C. area. He was an attorney. He started PistolTraining.com. He was a member of Team Beretta. You know, he kind of developed widely accepted drills and standards. And I, I, I wanted to mention Todd because I think, you know, you know, he... he 
he was an influence, especially during this, you know, modern age. Right. Uh, uh, Todd was my connection and how I, my nexus to how I met Tom Givens. Huh. Yeah. I mean, Todd knew everyone and, and that pistol training.com still to this day is a huge, credible resource. So, uh, you know, then you have uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, you know, uh, experiences. I mean, what brought this about is now everything becomes rapidly commercialized and homogenized into the law enforcement and commercial markets. Things that were going on out in the battle space almost instantaneously are coming back, you know, into the practical shooting world back, you know, back here. Um, you know, the, you have, again, the, to, to make, you know, open, you know, knowledge of, of this, you know, you have the advent of tactical conferences, you know, where you have now the open flow of information. You have National Tactical Invitational, Skip Gockenauer and Walt Rausch up in York, Pennsylvania. You have Range Master TACCON, Tom Givens, Shooter Symposium. You know, there's others. Yeah. But, you know, there's now, again, you don't have to wait for the mail. You don't have to have long phone conversations, you know, with three-hour time differences, you know, between guys on the East Coast and, you know, um, you know California. It's like this. It's in, instantaneous open flow, you know, of information that can be passed rapidly. But there's also a lack of an editorial filter with that. Yeah, there is that. And uh, which, you know, um, is good, and but mostly it's bad. <laughs> well, I know that we have gotten to the current era, and we've get, mentioned all these historical people, and we talked about several you know, major military conflicts, everything, but there's nobody from the recent wars of terror on your list. Yeah. I, uh, the reason I did that is I think time will tell with the newest group of veterans and, you know, you know, there, there's no doubt these guys are heroes and, you know, all that, but, you know, I think time will tell what the contribution is. I, I wanted to keep this away from, you know, every guy that won the nationals or every guy that invented a drill, you know, right. who truly was an influencer. And I think time will tell, you know, if you, uh, if any of these guys, if, if I had to mention other guys from this, you know, very recent era, you know, I'll talk about somebody who's passed away just a couple of years ago, uh, Paul Gomez. Uh, Paul was a, a, a a former uh, soldier, uh, but Paul was a great trainer. He was a, a super knowledgeable about firearms. Uh, I always said Paul. Paul knew about knew more about AK-47s than Kalashnikov did. He, he really did. And the interesting thing about Paul is Paul is the guy who convinced William April and Craig Douglas, you know, into getting involved in open training. So you know, Paul. I think Paul kind of. You know, he, again, him passing away early, I, I think has probably, you know, made a lot of people forget, the, you know, the influence. He was kind of pre-YouTube, although there are some YouTubes uh-huh. all out there. But it, it's almost he should be remembered by who he brought, you know, into the uh, training community and opened the access to them to the commercial public. All right. And, you know, you've told me in conversation, and we've kind of alluded on it, uh, earlier in this episode, 
influential people and key events tend to drive things. And then, you know, you've, you've touched on competition, finding efficiencies, et cetera. Who from the purely competitive background, we're not, we're not talking tactics, you know, military, law enforcement, whatever, who from that pure competitive background you think's had a major impact? You know, Rob Latham by far. You know, he's been a dominant force in practical shooting games probably since at least 1983. I saw him win the, the Nationals down at Virginia Beach. Um, you know, and he, I mean, that's 40 years ago. So, uh, you know, for nearly 40 years, you know, he's won 30 Nationals, you know, international competitions, you know, and probably twice as many other shooting events like Steel Challenge and Bianchi Cup and, you know, everything. You know, I, I would contend he is the equivalent of the Baseball Hall of Famer, Ted Williams. You know, Ted Williams is known as the greatest hitter in baseball. And I, I would contend that, you know, Rob is the equal in practical shooting. You know, it's interesting to see that recently he's teaching classes with other trainers. And, uh, you know, he's become like uh, the famous singer, uh, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra later in his career where Everybody wanted to sing a duet with uh, with Frank Sinatra, and I think it's the same way, you know, with with Rob Latham. Is everybody wants to do a duet with uh, Rob Latham, and you know, uh, I, I think he's a guy somebody ought, people ought to be listening to because he's you know made it his life to find those efficiencies and develop techniques, and he, I would bet he thinks about what we do slightly different than everyone else and how could you knock right the way he thinks with his record so yeah uh you mentioned ted williams there uh of note he endorsed a line of firearms for sears and robots he was a fine wing shooter Mm -hmm. the very the very first live round i ever fired in a gun and here's the answer to a trivia question ladies and gentlemen the very first shot I ever fired with an actual firearm was with a Sears Ted Williams uh, 20 gauge pump shotgun that my father owned. And it was actually a high standard flight king that had been remodeled under that Sears line of Ted Williams. Yeah. Uh, and I know they were doing Winchester 94s with, they were calling them the Ted Williams and they had some other designation for it. But, you know, there was a whole line out there and, you know, just a phenomenal athlete that's, Probably would have been even more phenomenal if he hadn't have taken time off to go fight a war in the middle of his career. Five, five years at war. Yeah. So, um, if I had to pick somebody other than Cooper, you know, who had great influence, I would argue Ken Hackerton. Um, you know, Ken, great trainer uh, of civilian military law enforcement. Uh, I saw, I, I trained with Ken at the FBI Academy in the early 80s when he was teaching MB5 and CQB techniques to, to the FBI at the time. Uh, you know, he was at the founding of both the IPSC and the IDPA. You know, um, you know he's, you know, I, I think he's a great representative of, you know, practical shooting. I'd also kind of argue Masayu, just because he's such a prolific writer you know, he was the first guy to kind of talk about the practicalities of the law for police and civilians. And, you know, to this day, 
you know, if any of the viewers have a chance to go here is one of his, you know, legal courses, I, I think it's well worthwhile, you know, attending. So, you know, if, you know, I know that would, that question would get a lot of argument, but <laughs> in, in my, in, in my view, I, I kind of, I kind of go along with those two guys, All right. but well, both diff, different kind of guys too. <laughs> but, uh, this has been a barn burner of an episode where we've touched on a lot of stuff and uh but i would be remiss is there anything that we did not talk about that you want to discuss no um if people have documentation uh or you know uh stories you know like tell me there was some guy up in chicago i i'd like to know you know what they were doing or georgia you know wherever i i'm i know there was people you know around doing this in the 50s and 60s you know prior you know the cooper and some of the other people i mentioned i, I know there were uh it's just show me some documentation tell me some stories you know i'll pass them on to you know other people um you know i wish somebody would write a comprehensive you know story about this um you know a true historian you know but the problem is, you know, a lot of this isn't documented and archived or easily retrievable. So you tend to have, you know, different views and, you know, but my view is, you know, I, I, this isn't definitive. It's just, you know, let's look at the trends and what brought us to what point and, you know, and, uh, and we ought to know where we came from. I, I, uh, Frank, and the other thing is, what I'll tell you is, if you know your history, you'll recognize in the future when somebody reinvents, you know, I don't know what, you know, bringing back point shooting or something. You know, oh, okay, well, they were actually doing this. You know, here, here's, you know, I don't know what, somebody will invent some technique of, well, I do it this way, you know, and, that, and that's what, you know, I'm like, why are we arguing over you know, putting the thing in the thing and make the thing work, you know, right. you know, we have to argue on who invented that technique because, you know, in my study, it probably wasn't just invented by that guy. There was probably another guy somewhere else who had been doing it. You know, I mean, some of the photographs that Kelly McCann found in the Marine Corps archives of the Marines in China, I mean, shows, two-handed pistol technique, you know, underhanded knife techniques, you know, combatives of, uh, you know, using certain start positions, you know, stuff that I've heard argument that, oh, so-and-so developed that. Well, you know, these guys in China, you know, getting in bar fights, they developed it. <laughs> you know? And you know what? Somebody developed it probably before them too. So, um, but I, I think it's an interesting launching of discussion. Let's just put it that way. There you go, folks. If you have any of the any other documentation that you would like to get into Gary's hands, you can send it to me at Lee at firstpersonsafety.com. That is Lee at firstpersonsafety.com, and I will make sure that it gets forwarded along to Gary. Uh, Gary, I very much uh, appreciate you joining us tonight. I know this has been episode has been a long work in progress, and and I 
very much appreciate that you're you're taking the time and making the effort to make sure that so much of this is preserved and like passing along to guys like me and then guys like Kegel who'll be around long after after that. I mean, that's uh, where that's where my hope is is guys like him. Right, and uh, yeah, I very much appreciate you helping make sure that all of this knowledge isn't lost. And I thank you for that, and thank you for your many years of service and all the things that you've done done for us. And you don't have to ask me, you know, what my web page is and you know, <laughs> what, what training I'm offering. because I don't do any of that stuff. That's right. That's right. Uh, but it's always fun to sit and chat with you at those events. And uh, I got to tell you, folks, it's, it's always kind of funny when a bunch of old cops are sitting around and, and Gary's there and, and we'll get telling some story about something that happened at, you know, down at the intersection of whatever and whatever. And then Gary will come up. Well, in 1983 in Lebanon, we were dealing with <laughs> With, with this incident and uh it, it's just well i guess that puts things into perspective there and uh thank you for all of that and all the time you spent being a mentor and a resource and uh, i very much enjoyed our conversations and hope to keep having them for a long time in the future okay hey thanks a lot i love what you're mm-hmm. doing lee i look yeah. forward to uh, whenever your shows pop pop up on my uh you know on my list so well thank you thank you i hope this continues yes sir uh to the audience uh if you're listening to this on your podcast feed there will be a link in the show notes if you want to become a show supporter uh we've got i think eight or nine now that have popped in and doing the the individual show support so thank you to all of you guys i am going to put all that back in to hopefully do some better production values uh to to the show and uh, i'll put that link in the show notes on the youtube video as well uh so everyone uh, i know this is going to be kind of a long episode but i think it's very worth it uh thank you for sticking with us thank you for playing along and most importantly thank you for your time